the reading this evening is uh, Exodus chapter 19. It's about page 76 uh, in the Bibles, church Bibles. So uh, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. Uh, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert, in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear me speaking with you, and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the, mount, uh, the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down. And warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. 
Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, uh, Martin, uh, for reading. Do keep that uh, passage uh, open. So we're back in Exodus, and we've arrived at this very significant moment uh, in the story. It's a sort of hinge, really, of, of the whole book, um, a great book that encapsulates, I think, very powerfully the good news of, of Jesus, as we'll hopefully see before we're done. And if chapters 1 to 18 of Exodus about what the God's people have been saved from, um, now Exodus starts to focus on uh, what God's people have been saved for. And even this week, it's been exciting to think about and to reflect on both those things that are very much in view uh, in this great chapter. And in this, uh, in, this, in this chapter, it's a bit of a spoiler alert, we discover that we have been rescued for a relationship. And that's uh, God's purpose right from the beginning. And astonishing, not just any old relationship, but one that's described here as a, a covenant, a, a, a binding, a, a committed relationship that at best is understood as nothing less than uh, the most intimate of marriages. Well, we have the privilege this evening to gather at the beginning of this marriage service, as it were, between God and his people Israel. This is the, the ceremony that will cement uh, this relationship. Just this week, I was reading a, a great part of Isaiah, where God says these words to a people about to go into exile. He says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed to be, uh, you will not be ashamed or be confounded. Uh, you will not be disgraced. For your maker is your husband, the Lord, of Arm, the Lord of Armies is his name. That language of God as a husband uh, is one that you find right through uh, the scriptures. But here, is, as it were, is where that relationship, that marriage, as it were, is solemnized. And it is solemn. Uh, it's a glorious thing, but it's also it's solemn. Uh, I've been to some great weddings where you're definitely convinced the people at the front are the people who should be there. But it's still a, a, a solemn thing, isn't it? It's a, a moment of big promises, of big commitments. And, and you, you think of the future stretching out and the ups and downs and the, the moments of heartbreak and, and the failures. Well, we're going to explore this relationship a bit more this evening. So let's pray as we come to this great chapter. Father, we thank you for this great chapter of your words. Uh, thank you. There's so much here to ponder, uh, more than we can explore in just a few minutes. But help us to grasp those things that you want us to know so that we might live in the confidence of your committed love for us. Help us to live out our great calling as your bride, your people. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I said this is a kind of a hinge chapter, really, in the whole of Exodus. And it does begin with this kind of look backwards uh, at all that's taken place so far. Look down at uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter uh, 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. 
after they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So two months after leaving uh, Egypt, on that dramatic night of Passover, God's people find themselves in front of the mountain. And you might be forgiven for thinking, sorry, uh, what mountain's that? Well, it's Mount Sinai. It's a mountain of God. But it's also known as another name. Uh, it's known as Mount Horeb. And if you remember, that's the place where Moses first met God at that burning bush where God called him to lead his people. And if you go back to Exodus 3, uh, do you remember what God had said to a very sceptical and unsure and reluctant shepherd, Moses? Let me remind you. He said, uh, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. <coughs> well, as uh, God's people prepare for this wedding, uh, as they prepare to give themselves fully uh, uh, to God, to entrust themselves to him, God has proved himself, hasn't he already, as totally trustworthy, <coughs> a great promise keeper, uh, the husband who's going to be utterly faithful and utterly reliable and dependable. And here's the powerful proof. Here's the sign the impossible has happened, hasn't it? Uh, just as God promised, they have been rescued as that enslaved people, uh, that night brought out of the control and power of Pharaoh and brought to this mountain, just as God said he would do. So Moses it kind of finds himself, doesn't he, right back where it started. But just how much has changed? How great has been God's faithfulness? How trustworthy his promises how fierce his commitment to Moses and to his people. There's a lovely moment, we haven't seen this in, this is in the previous chapter, but uh, where Moses meets, meets his father-in-law after probably quite a lengthy period of time, must have been a very joyful reunion. And not least, as, as Moses described, how God has indeed delivered his people uh, from Egypt and from slavery uh, through astonishing love and power. And I love uh, Jethro's response to all that Moses tells him. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. Now I know and of course, God, as he's promised, has been revealing himself uh, through his great acts of redemption and judgment, revealing himself to Moses, uh, to Pharaoh, to God's people, and to others like Jethro too. And so as this marriage takes place between God and his people, it's not one of those arranged marriages where the bride only discovers what her bridegroom is like on the night of the marriage. Now, this is a bride who could be confident as she prepares for that big day and all that follows as she comes to the one who is committed to her and has proved that so wonderfully faithfully in those events that have just taken place. Let's look more at this relationship that God is offering uh, going forwards, that relationship that is now to be formalized. I mean, just think about this relationship uh, as uh, God's people, as the bride. Let's go back a bit. Where we are. There we go. Brilliant. I, I learned something interesting this week uh, as I was preparing. Uh, so many Jews see their own 
marriages as a sort of celebration in miniature of this amazing marriage between God and the Jewish people. And often at a Jewish wedding, there is a, a moment where there is a reading of a covenant. So echoing again what happened here at this mountain in Exodus 19. I also learned that the Jews seen this part of Exodus, uh, and indeed the whole of the Torah, Genesis through to uh, uh, Deuteronomy, um, as the marriage covenant. So whenever they're hearing this part of scripture, they are hearing, as it were, God's language of love for his people. That is to be reciprocated in the response of those people uh, to God. That's oh, so very striking, isn't it? As we think about these next bits of, of Exodus going forwards, as we think about the, the commandments, this is God's as it were, language of love. Good to think about that, isn't it? Uh, and to perhaps rethink how we see this part of the Bible. Well, if the Torah is, as I said, this epicenter of the covenant, we haven't got to work too hard, have we, to hear that note of love, that language of love in these verses that we've read. Again, let me read verses four to six to you. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey, uh, fully keep and obey my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you are to speak to uh, the Israelites. We've got to wait a while before we get to the Ten Commandments. We're going to have a break in our series in Exodus. But I imagine some of us are quite keen to get there. There's lots there to talk about and think about as we hit those important uh, verses and chapters in Exodus. But just notice, before there's any talk of what God's people are called to do, before their responsibilities in this relationship are, are fleshed out, God insists that they remember what God has done for them. And that's the way it always is for us too. Before there's any talk of us and our commitment uh, to God, God first demonstrates his love and commitment to us. So God is always the initiative taker, uh, the one who makes all the running in this relationship, the one who loves us first and commits himself to us before we make any moves of love or obedience in response. And even the, the language of that, those verses, I think, underpins that reality. You yourselves have seen what I did, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to this place. Notice all that God's people did was what? They saw. They observed, they watched. This was the, the sum total, really, of their contribution to their rescue. It was God who had crushed uh, their enemies when they were helpless and powerless. It was he who drowned the pursuing armies of Pharaoh as they pursued God's people. God who brought them through the Red Sea and safely to the other side. I did all that, says God, and you saw, you just watched. I love that picture too of being carried on eagle's wings. It's a picture, isn't it, of a great bird carrying its young in flights. Again, I'm emphasizing all that has happened is, is God's work, his power, his initiative. I just recently, Miriam, you might know, uh, visited Hong Kong to visit her mum out there. And I heard her this week on the phone saying that she just got back uh, from Hong Kong. She'd just flown back from Hong Kong. And I thought to myself, well, that's news to me. I didn't know that she had, was a qualified pilot. I didn't know she could uh, fly a 747. Well, well, she hasn't. She's not. 
Um, in fact, when she said that she had flown, what she really meant was that she had sat in a very comfy seat, uh, watched a couple of movies before uh, nodding off. Actually, a pilot did the actual work, uh, getting her from Hong Kong back uh, to London. God's the one who takes the initiative. He does, he does all the work. We are like those sort of eaglets, as it were, uh, clinging uh, to the one who does all the flying, all the work. And now, uh, having... Uh, uh, rescued his people, brought to his mountain. He describes it, doesn't he, as, as his treasured possession. It's a very striking verse, isn't it? A very striking phrase. God describing his people as his treasured possession. Again, look down at verse 5. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured uh, possession. Now, there is a call to obedience here, a call not only to enter into this covenant, but to obey the terms of that covenant. And shortly, God, God will lay out what those uh, instructions are that will help this relationship flourish uh, and be enjoyed by his people. But don't you love the way that God describes those, he, those he's rescued as his treasured possession? My treasured possession. Again, it's a glorious uh, description that's meant to convey this is much more than some sort of business agreement. This is a marriage uh, covenant. Back in the ancient Near East, uh, kings owned everything in their kingdom. That's how it worked. But a king, too, would have his own sort of personal treasury. Uh, so special things uh, that he would gather uh, uh, together and keep close to himself because they were particularly special and valuable to him. And God here wants us to know that while he owns everything, the earth really is his and all that's in it. And he loves all that he has made, uh, that these people are most special to him. He wants to keep them close because they are so precious to him. Have you ever been around um, couples, uh, often older ones, I find, who have all kinds of endearing terms uh, for their partners? I remember one, a couple, where the husband always called his wife my treasure or treasure. It was quite sweet and it was totally genuine. It's totally genuine. And I, I found it endearing. And I love watching the way uh, the wife just flourished, as it were, and beamed and sort of glowed and basked, as it were, in that special status, knowing her, her preciousness uh, to her spouse. I wonder if you have something that you might call precious. Maybe it's an old photograph of someone that means someone, something to you. Maybe it's a special piece of jewellery, um, special, not, maybe not just because of its value or materially, but because of who, it, who gave it to you. Uh, something you might always want to keep close, as it were, to your heart, literally over your heart, because of its value to you, its specialness. Well, here the Almighty God looks upon this ragtag bunch of people, um, and amidst all that he's created, he declares that, that they are his treasured possession. Well, so for so long, uh, these people, of course, have been Pharaoh's possession. And that proved the most miserable of experiences, a crushing slavery. But this verse, I think, hints that to be possessed by God, uh, to belong to him, uh, not only through creation, but also through redemption, will be gloriously liberating and transforming. Well, as we reflect on this amazing description of the Israelites and recognize how 
in some way these words apply to us as we belong to God. I guess one of the questions we might have is, is this. If he loves his people in this special way, well, what about the rest of the world? Is he indifferent to others that he's also made? Is his love, yes, extravagant, but also very exclusionary? That's a great question, isn't it? But here in these important verses, we discover that that's not how God loves. It's not as though God loves us, but not the world. Rather, he loves his people for the world. See, in these amazing verses, we not only see the special status of God's people as they enjoy this amazing intimate relationship with him, we get a big hint, don't we, of the, of the special purpose that he has for them as his beloved people. And look down. Although the whole, whole earth is mine, says God, you will be for me a kingdom of priests uh, and a holy nation. We haven't got time to dwell on this yet, but it will come back uh, again. But you notice how God speaks of his people as a kingdom of priests. Uh, priests in the Bible's terms uh, were simply those who were involved in the worship of God. That was their great responsibility, their great joy. They had a special and privileged access to God. And here God says that his people uh, as a whole can enjoy this exalted status and access to God as priests, a kingdom of priests. But it's priests too that were given the task of bringing others into the presence of God. That was one of the, the key ways that they, they served. So do you see here in these verses, we meet a God whose love is ultimately not exclusionary. No, his plan is to, to reach the world, draw that world into himself, and remarkably to do that through those he describes as his treasured possession. See, as people, these people live out and enjoy their special and distinctive status, as they live out their priv privileged identity as God's beloved and treasured bride, so God's great purpose is to draw others into this relationship through his people. Of course, there's always been God's plan. As you think back to Abraham, God said that he would bless Abraham. Why? So that he might be a blessing to the wider world. And now here, as God calls his people into that relationship, uh, he pre prepares them for this amazing purpose. That's all the more surprising, just given how weak and how feeble and how impressive they seem and appear. But such is God's power and his love and his grace. I say we'll think much more about this as we return uh, to this book later on uh, next year, probably. Well, wonderfully, in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter takes these very words from Exodus 19 and applies them to a very small and hard-pressed and struggling scattered group of Christians. Let me just read a few verses from 1 Peter chapter 2. Writer to Christians, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, um, you are God's special possession. Uh, forget the Grand Canyon or that perfect sunset, God declares that we are his crown jewels, uh, most precious to him than anything else that he's made. And isn't that remarkable when we think about ourselves and the kind of people uh, that God has set his love on and lavished his love on? Once we were not a people, certainly not God's people, those who turned away from God 
those who were enslaved to all kinds of sinful desires. But God, in his mercy and grace, has brought us near. He's made us his own. And he's met us and he's wooed us with his mercy and grace. That just means, isn't it, this week, whatever we experience, whatever struggles we face, whatever might happen that makes God seem perhaps distant to us in some way, be assured that you are precious to him. More precious than anything else. You might be feeble, you might be very aware of your sinfulness. We are more sinful than we realise, but actually we are more loved and cherished than we could ever imagine or dream. Great truth, isn't it, to cling to this week. We are God's special and treasured possession. And the more that we enjoy that status, uh, the more we display that reality. The more that we live out, too, our God-given role as his priests, those who commend Jesus and God to a watching world. Finally and briefly, I just want to think one more thing before we're done. Uh, So I think it's very clear from our passage. So to enjoy this wonderful relationship uh, that we see in this wonderful passage, we need a God's chosen mediator. As as, uh, Martin was reading the second part of uh, Exodus 19, one thing that particularly jumped out at me, maybe jumped out at you too, was just how Moses keeps going up and down this mountain. I, I think I counted, I think, three ascents and descents as he acts as this sort of go-between between God and, and the people he represents. And by, bear in mind, Moses is 80. He's no uh, spring chicken. He's on the wrong side of 80. So I look down at verse 21. I thought it was quite funny. As Moses gets to the top of the mountain for the third time, God's words to Moses are, get down. <laughs> <sighs> but do you see, there's, there's an obvious need, isn't there, for a mediator a go-between, someone uh, to represent the people in God's presence. Because of what we see in our passage, this great, unbearable holiness of God. And with a God like that, especially when we talk about sinful people, we can't simply breeze up to God, can we? We can't simply waltz into his presence without there being disaster. Uh, Again, just let me read verses 16 to 19 again. Just imagine for a moment yourself being at the foot of this mountain, Try and sort of picture the sights and the sounds and the smells. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder, lightning. There was a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood just at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Smoke billowed up from it, from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. It's quite a graphic picture. To get the picture, thunder, a lightning, smoke, fire, trumpets getting louder and louder. And that's before God even begins to speak. No wonder the people tremble as the unapproachable approaches them. The mountain trembled, uh, the people trembled. Read Hebrews 12, Moses trembled. As one commentator puts it, the closer the people came to God, the more clearly they saw the vast distance between them that separated them from God. That's why Moses is running up down the mountain, uh, because the people couldn't bear to be in God's presence. That's why they needed God's chosen mediator.
Don't look down at your Bibles for a second, but just let me read verse 9 of our passage and try and guess how this verse might end. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in me. You'd think, wouldn't you? But it's not, is it? Always put their trust in Moses. I wasn't expecting that. I thought it'd be something about trusting God, but here is God, I think, underlining the importance of people recognising and trusting the mediator he has provided. They were to listen when they to Moses' words and treat them as God's words. They were to obey Moses' instructions as the commands from God himself. And even here, God gives very specific instructions to the mediator as to how they're to be clean and how they're to be consecrated for God before there's any talk of them drawing near. Later on, we read of of safety barriers being erected to stop any foolish people coming uh, close to God without the mediator. Can you imagine people saying, well, thank God for Moses. Praise God for a mediator. And here's the thing, God hasn't changed. There's no sort of scary God of the Old Testament and a sort of easygoing, soft-touch God of the New. A God that we have to fear in the first half of the Bible and a God who gets a lot more friendly in the second. So what's changed? Not us. We're still miserable. We're still often sinful. We're weak. We're messed up. What's changed? Listen to the words of Hebrews 12. I think this will tell us what's changed. They'll appear on the screen. The writer writes to Christians, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That's how he goes on. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See the the similarities and the contrasts? Mostly contrasts. Two mountains, that's similar. One dark, foreboding and gloomy, stormy. The other full of joy and celebration. One mountain designed to keep people at distance. The other mountain designed to bring people close. One mountain surrounded by people full of fear. The other inhabited by a joyful assembly. Same God. Both mountains. Same kinds of people. But now we have a different mediator. And that means we can approach uh, God if we trust Jesus with full confidence, not with fear and trembling. See, while Moses did his best as God's stopgap mediator, Jesus is God's ultimate mediator. He's the one who ascended that great hill called Mount Calvary to to shed his blood, uh, to die, to pay for our sin, to give us that perfect righteousness so that we might be acceptable to God, that we might draw near with full confidence and assurance uh, in Jesus. 
Even Moses, the mediator, trembled, didn't he, to draw near. But Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, this new marriage, he died. He gave his life. Uh, he absorbed God's, God's judgment. Uh, that should have fallen on us so that we can come with confidence before this God. I, I know a barrister, um, and a while back he was telling me whenever he hears about a, a defendant insisting on representing himself, his kind of heart sinks. Because he knows how it's going to turn out. It's going to be a disaster. It always ends up in disaster. Well, as those who know that we are sinful, we've got no leg to stand on, on our own, before a God of such purity and holiness, God has given us one mediator. Uh, someone to represent God to us and us to God. Someone who can bring us near into astonishing intimacy as our sin bearer and as our righteousness. So if we've trusted Jesus uh, to be our mediator, we've trusted in his death, his blood, that deals with our sin, we receive that perfect uh, obedience uh, he won for us in our place, then we can approach this awesome God with confidence. But we can live in the joy of that relationship even this week, uh, confident of that welcome, sure of that Father's delight in those he loves, those who are his treasured possession. And his beloved bride. Let's find many opportunities, even this week, to praise God for this relationship and for this mediator we trust and we depend on who's made that relationship possible. Let's pray as we finish. Some words from Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, full assurance that faith brings. Father, we want to thank you so much for this amazing relationship that we've been called to enjoy. Thank you for our rescue that shows your commitment and your love to us. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that you open up to us to know this this marriage of people and God that just blows us away as we think about its, its glory and its, how undeserved it is. Lord, we pray that we would be excited to, to know, even this week, and uh, to live out this wonderful status of being your treasured possession, those in whom you set your love. Oh, thank you so much for Jesus who makes all this possible. Help us, even this week, to draw near with confidence knowing that as we draw, draw near, that you see Jesus, that you see his perfect life, and you open your arms to welcome and accept us. Help us to live out these truths. Help us to commend these truths to others too, who currently don't know you, who don't enjoy this wonderful relationship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.